0: Horses Equine Innovators Podcast, sponsored by Zoetis. I'm your host, Stephanie Church, Editor-in-Chief at The Horse. Everyday researchers at universities and other institutions around the world are investigating new ways to care for and understand our horses in the horse industry. In this podcast series, we talk to those innovators to learn more about their work. First today, a message from our sponsor. Core EQ Innovator from Zoetis is the first and only vaccine to protect against all five potentially fatal core equine diseases in a single injection, rabies, tetanus, West Nile virus, plus Eastern and Western encephalomyelitis. Talk to your veterinarian today to schedule your horse's vaccination with EQ Innovator. And now for today's conversation. Broodmare owners want nothing more than to see their new foals healthy and thriving. Sometimes foals develop diarrhea, however, which can be dangerous, even deadly. A variety of pathogens can cause this, but rotavirus is often the culprit. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Emma Adam of the University of Kentucky. Dr. Adam is a researcher at the Gluck Equine Research Center and an equine industry liaison. Early this year, she was key in helping identify the cause of some unusual rotaviral fold diarrhea cases here in central Kentucky. Welcome Dr. Adam. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much, Stephanie. It's delightful to be here. Um, I'm I'm, I'm happy to talk about this. It's very exciting.
0: Well, thank you uh, for joining us. We really appreciate your time. So could you describe your background, please, both as a clinician and a researcher?
1: Absolutely. It's probably a little bit checkered, but um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm originally English, went through vet school in England. Before vet school, I worked here in central Kentucky and really fell in love with the United States. So when I finished uh, vet school, I actually worked in racing uh, for quite a long time in Newmarket, which is obviously Lexington's sister city uh, mm-hmm. in England and realizing that I actually liked fixing horses much more than I I liked training them uh, to those extremes, I decided to embark on my sort of veterinary career proper. So I went into practice and then got my first start here in the United States at Colorado State University and I was there for about two and a half years. From there I was lucky enough to go to Texas A&M where I did an internal medicine residency, large animal, And from there, I pursued my my dream, which was to become an equine surgeon, and I was fortunate enough to do that at the New Bolton Center, the University of Pennsylvania, where, as you know, we we worked on on Barbaro there. Um, He was there when I was there. So I've been really lucky. Um, I went then into private practice, um, both in New York, France, and um, then back here in Kentucky. Um, before stopping to do a PhD, which was to really answer a lot of the questions that had developed over the course of my career as a clinician. And I'd always sort of had done a little bit of research, but really enjoyed it. So coming back to do a PhD in our musculoskeletal lab here at the Gluck Research Center was just absolutely fabulous. And then that emerged into a growing need for our community here to, to continue to build bridges and harness the amazing amount of work and expertise that takes place here in central Kentucky. Obviously, lots and lots of horses, lots of fabulous veterinarians and farm managers, and then with our research center as a great focus for, for, for research for horses, and as you heard from Dr. James on your last episode, the Veterinary Diagnostic Lab being an amazing place to discover and find things, uh, we really uh, wanted to really focus and harness that synergy between industry and academia and here it works really well and so that's how come uh, I'm in this current position uh, facilitating those collaborations
0: that's incredible it sounds like you've had a very fulfilling career so far seen-
1: my colleagues tease me quite a lot on how many places I've worked but it is mm-hmm. really a joy it's a great profession to get you around the globe
0: Mm-hmm. And you've seen a lot of the globe so far, so I am excited to hear what you what you do next. But I hope uh, you stay with us for a long time.
1: <laughs> so, oh, yes. Yeah. Kentucky definitely feels like home. It really always has. So I'm very fortunate to be here. It is an absolute honeypot for anybody who wants to be uh, thinking, eating, sleeping, drinking horses all the time.
0: Indeed so uh what do you enjoy about being an equine researcher specifically
1: right well we are constantly faced with problems and questions and in equine research um we have so many different places to look for those answers and so it is a smorgasbord of fabulous interesting puzzles to solve which of course when you're interested in horses is is just a fabulous combination to to try and move science forward and be part of a a greater picture a bigger team that are really pushing the frontiers forward and providing extra information and tools for horse owners and veterinarians to care for their horses better and not just here in this country but obviously uh, in other countries as well Mm
0: -hmm. so today we're going to be talking about rotavirus Um, one of the diseases that you have studied, could you first explain what it is and how it typically behaves in a horse population?
1: Absolutely. So rotavirus is a very interesting group of RNA viruses. Um, There's a large group of them and they typically uh, infect um, animals or humans in a group dependent fashion. So we typically associate rotavirus A as being the pathogen that affects uh, horses and the other groups affecting other animals, domestic animals, as well as humans. Uh, in humans, it's actually a very significant disease and the reason uh, for the majority of, of diarrhea in very young babies in many developing countries. So it's a massive area of interest. And when it's a very contagious disease as well, very, very few number of particles of virus need to be ingested by a neonate to become infected. Once an animal or human is infected, they're typically, if they get over it okay, and most of the time they do, they will not be reinfected during the rest of their life. But in neonates, uh, small numbers of particles will get into the gut. The virus needs to go inside cells, the host cells to replicate. And the cells that the rotavirus likes to get into are the villus cells, so the small intestinal lining. The villi are like finger-like projections in the small intestine that are there to increase the surface area for digestive efficiency and also the location for many of the digestive enzymes, particularly lactase, which digests lactose, the milk sugar. And so when that virus gets in there and multiplies, the cells are destroyed at the tips of the villi, leading to huge numbers of viruses being released into the gut and passed out in diarrhea. We have a malabsorption because of the damage of that gut. We have inflammation, and we also have a a maldigestion, and the combination of that malabsorption and maldigestion creates an environment that can set the gut up for other infections, such as bacteria like clostridium perfringens, but it does primary damage in that way that causes that diarrhea to occur in these neonates, which, of course, the younger the foal, the more serious the problem.
0: How quickly does this normally set in?
1: We typically see uh, these diseases getting hold of foals at about 24 to 48 hours if they are born to unvaccinated mares, or in the case this year where we saw a new variant, uh, mares that didn't have immunity or we don't think they had immunity to that new strain. So it's a problem that occurs usually in the first week of life, typically Mm -hmm. around 48 hours of age.
0: Okay, so how does a typical year look in central Kentucky as far as foal illness from rotavirus? Do do we see a lot of it?
1: So we will typically see um, rotavirus A um, occurring in foals that are born to vaccinated mares and they'll usually get sick at around 90 to 120 days of age. And that can cause a little colic, but it's typically self-limiting some on the farm palliative care is usually what takes care of those foals. In unvaccinated mares, if we see this rotavirus A in unvaccinated mares, we will see the disease in neonates um, under a week of age. Uh, often, as I mentioned, you know, a couple of days of age. So very serious and critical age. Um, and so we usually are quite aggressive in treating the neonates with intravenous fluids. Often they'll need some pain medication. Sometimes they actually get taken off the mare so they can't nurse because we feel that that can really uh, promote the gut's healing process. But of course, that can only be done in a very intensive care hospitalized situation. And we usually give the neonates um, broad spectrum antibiotics to protect them from any bacteria crossing the gut wall and setting up a septicemia or a joint ill or something like that, which of course can be devastating. In the older foals, as I mentioned, it's usually much more palliative care Um, they don't uh, often get antibiotics they're usually sort of over it in a couple of days
0: Mm -hmm. okay so aside from vaccinating the mares how do brood mare owners typically prevent rotavirus
1: well that's a great question stephanie because it's a really big problem And, and even though we've all really been trained very well with our Biosecurity protocols for COVID 19. Um, biosecurity protocols are, are really critical to preventing uh, the disease taking hold of your, your farm, uh, having an outbreak if you have one index case where a fold gets sick with it. It is so highly contagious that even small amounts, you know, a few hundred virus particles carried on a person's hands or a piece of equipment from one fold to another will enable that disease to to cause an outbreak uh, on your farm and so biosecurity using uh, appropriate cleanliness washing your hands and not messing with the falls too much um, foot dips uh, cleanliness of your barn not not spreading manure on your fields um, making sure that you have reduced traffic um, and then of course disinfection and um cleanliness are absolutely paramount importance Um, we do try to stop people using leaf blowers in barns when we have situations where we have outbreaks Mm -hmm. that's a great way to spread disease and we have some resources on our website because biosecurity is not one size fits all unfortunately and you have to use appropriate uh, disinfectants for this virus Uh, bleach in a barn situation, for example, is is not effective because there's too much organic material in the barn. So you have to really read the labels and uh, develop a plan with your veterinarian.
0: Indeed. Well, I look forward to sharing some of those links to materials about biosecurity in our show notes. So listeners, you can look at the landing page for this podcast on the horse or in the show notes um, on iTunes and follow them to learn more. So you know, this this spring or uh, early this year, Central Kentucky veterinarians were seeing something a little different than they typically do. Could you tell me a little bit more about that, please?
1: Yes, absolutely, Stephanie. So um, late, Feb, sort of late January, uh, February this year, we were seeing situations where farms were reporting um, that they would have, you know, the first 10 foals born normally. And then each and every foal after that, for many foals, you know, 10 or 15 foals, each foal was getting diarrhea at about two days of age. And some of them would colic, uh, get a little bloated, um, stop nursing the mare, which of course is very serious. But the really critical factor about that is that we were seeing this go through each and every foal that was being born subsequent to the first case. We saw that on a number of farms. In fact, we believe from our phone survey, we saw it on approximately 45% of farms that we spoke to here in central Kentucky. And exactly. Very interesting. And the tests that were being performed by the veterinarians in the field indicated that um, we weren't seeing rotavirus A in these foals, even though it sort of really fit with a clinical pattern like that. We were seeing some clostridium perfringens and difficile on the fecal material, but the disease that is caused typically by those two bacterial organisms was not consistent with what we were seeing here, which was high volume, highly contagious diarrhea. And so with that, I um, spoke to Dr. Horhoff, my uh, boss and the leader of the Gluck Equal Research Center, and said, you know, Dr. Horhoff, I really think we have a problem here in central Kentucky. This is something that we we've got much more problem than we're normally seeing. You know, we'll see a little bit of diarrhea, but nothing on the scale of this. And the way it was happening on farms was very, very interesting. And he immediately rolled out some of the COLA emergency response funds that we are fortunate that the thoroughbred industry have given to us for such eventualities. And so we rolled that out. And of course, it was very difficult to get reagents earlier this year with COVID testing. So we were scrambling together and people at the Gluck were sharing uh, reagents. My colleague, Dr. Alan Page, helped me get that stuff together. And over a weekend, we rolled out a research project To collect samples from six farms that we identified that would help us. Some had diarrhea, some didn't, and a number of the veterinarians in our area. So all told, we we collected about 350 samples from those farms in addition to about another 120 samples over the course of the spring from normal and diarrhea falls. Uh, It was a massive Effort from our industry, uh, you know, our stakeholders. Busy time of year, dealing with problems. Uh, a heroic effort on everybody's part, and that's one of the amazing things about Central Kentucky is that we look for problems. Um, we we think we if we think we have something, we really get together and, and 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 sort of huddle to make sure we can identify the issues, and everybody puts in a ton of effort. I called Dr. Lee, who's our wonderful new virologist here at the Gluck. He only came a year ago. And I said, Dr. Lee, I think we have a problem and I'm, I'm sort of concerned that we, we don't have the, the testing facilities at this point in time because we're, we're not seeing it on the current board of tests that we do on these foals. And he said, oh, Emma, just bring me some samples. So you know, I got samples from some of the big practices around here and the, some of the other veterinarians who I had been talking to and asking them to save samples. And he sent them off to get sequenced and to perform metagenomic analysis. And 12 days later, we had a very, very hot smoking gun pointing to a new variant of rotavirus that was more consistent with rotavirus group B, which we haven't really seen in horses at all, um, but that had 96% homology to the bovine rotavirus B. So very, very interesting. And it was such a massive hit on the sequencing score that mm-hmm. it really is a smoking gun, even though we had not necessarily performed all our research te- tests on it. So we rapidly rolled out, on the basis of that sequencing, we rolled out a PCR testing. And then we're able to do PCR testing for people, which of course is, is always good to be able to know what you're dealing with. And we certainly found it in sick foals uh, plenty.
0: Yeah incredible. I, I'm amazed that you guys could be so agile especially during a human pandemic. Um, I guess that's testament to how well the clinicians and the clinics and uh, you guys in the in the actual you know bench labs um, all work together and I guess you know your your laboratory is really all these different farms that you work together on.
1: That's right. And, and that is, as I said, that's one of the greatest strengths that we have here in Central Kentucky is we all really talk to each other a lot. Um, Central Kentucky is one of the greatest places because you can talk about horses all day long and nobody thinks you're boring. It's fantastic.
0: <laughs> Indeed. So um, aside from using the new PCR test, how did discovery of this new strain adjust the activities of brood managers around here?
1: Right. Well, so even before we had the uh, the test, Stephanie, we were we were talking and trying to work with our stakeholder farms and anybody who we, we could reach to try and help them figure out what was going to be best for them on their farms. And our veterinary community were absolutely sterling in that regard. And so some of the things that helped people break the infectious cycle was to really um, Crank up their biosecurity protocols, and that included a lot of people foaling their mares outside with minimal contact of the foal, other than obviously the IgG and physical exam check that takes place, uh, you know, usually on day tw- day one of their their life. But um, if they didn't require any intervention at that time, they were really left alone for about the first week to try and minimise the possibility of of um, transmitting the disease to them because at that point we really knew that we had something highly contagious Um, so that really helped a lot of the farms uh, changed their practices they reduced any kind of visitors they changed their traffic flow of humans and vehicles um, in their farms and um, it was a huge strain on people to be honest because um, not as you mentioned with covid There were a lot of people that would normally come and spend the season here in Kentucky. They weren't here. So the workforce was put under a great deal of strain for this. So Mm -hmm. in in, in essence, it's really, it's all about cleanliness, the things we've learned during COVID, distance, washing your hands frequently, keeping things clean and reducing contact. And those are the sort of the, the real core elements to biosecurity on any farm.
0: You know it's interesting because I pass well I passed several thoroughbred farms on the way to where i I board my own horse um and I did notice this past year you know during the winter you typically you see the lights on in the barn for the um you know the controlling of the mare cycles um but I saw lights outside and I saw lights on paddocks with mares and foals. So I wonder if that's what was going on there, because that was a different thing than I had seen before at this particular farm I'm thinking about.
1: Absolutely. In fact, um, we uh, had a presentation at our rotavirus workshop, the recordings of which are also on our website that I know you're going to put a link up to. And we have um, farm managers really describing how they changed the infrastructure on their farm and did indeed put up uh, really powerful lights over paddocks that they divided and subdivided so that the mares could be outside and be observed carefully as we do here, uh, and foal outside with appropriate care and attention as needed. And so, and so these lights were just the same kind of lights that you you would see at the football fields. I mean, super bright, mm-hmm. but um, in the in light of being able to provide appropriate protection for our foal crop. Um, That really helped a lot. So it was a very interesting talk that one of our colleagues at one of the farms gave with regard to that.
0: Hmm, That's really interesting. I'm excited that I was seeing essentially a scientific study being carried out or at least the recommendations from after a scientific study being carried out on the farms. That's pretty cool.
1: And I think some people will continue that practice next year, actually, as we go forward.
0: Well, it just seems like foaling outdoors is, you know, more natural and comfortable for the mayor anyway. And it's super cold, but, you know, um,
1: yeah, it's one seems- of the big problems that we suffer with is in areas that are either really, really hot, really that have heavy rainstorms or get really cold. We do obviously worry about about the health of foals in that regard. But we have certainly those farms are now putting in additional infrastructure. To um, to cope with those issues, so that they can continue to fall outside.
0: That's really interesting. So, what does this mean for next year's falling season? We've we've got a test that we're using. Um, we are maybe working toward a possible vaccination. What what's what's ahead for us for this roto, rotavirus B variant?
1: That is a great question and I have to tell you, it does keep me up a little bit at night. Um, we obviously are certainly going to be quite prepared for it, um, not just here, but obviously we had some anecdotal reports, although not testing confirmed, from other states within the, uh, within the US um, this spring. So we are concerned that it is still potentially out there and maybe an issue next year. And so in addition to those biosecurity protocols, as you mentioned, we are working hard to, um, uh, to generate the data, the material to produce a vaccine. And we've been in active talks with um, various uh, boutique companies to be able to produce a vaccine once we get to that point. So we will not necessarily have it ready for the pregnant mares that are pregnant now and going to fall next year. But we really hope to be able to roll that out. Uh, in in short order coming going forward um, as well as potentially other tools for example hyperimmune plasma but the vaccine is going to be uh, the the really key factor uh, to move forward so that we have a a, a rotavirus vaccine that will cope with not just rotavirus a but rotavirus B as well Um, so that's a big push for us
0: okay good so I have something I probably should have asked sooner since you mentioned um, the impact of rotavirus on the human population around the world. Do we know if this particular variant can infect people?
1: That's a really good question. Um, this particular variant, we don't have any data on at the moment, Stephanie. Um, however, We do have, um, anytime we have a horse or any animal, to be honest, that that has diarrhea, we always consider there to be zoonotic risks, no matter what uh, particular organism we're thinking of. So that's a, a note of caution for us all to think about. Now, in terms of rotavirus, we do actually classify it as zoonotic, even though we don't have any evidence per se of this particular rotavirus B infecting humans. Um, We have certainly got some evidence that rotavirus A can do that. And actually, in the human literature about 15 years ago, all of a sudden, what popped up in the human population was a new variant of rotavirus that affects humans that also, that actually had a segment of the equine rotavirus genome in it. So we don't know how that jumped in there, but it's, it's now in the literature called equine-like rotavirus. So we mm-hmm. clearly know that things can switch around and change around in much the same way as we've learned from you know, the wet markets at Wuhan with the idea that that's potentially where the, the new coronavirus SARS variant two came from that's causing our current pandemic. So I think we should be really careful about it.
0: Yes, and you had mentioned that it was a. a, Did you say it was a bovine type
1: variant? Well, so we don't exactly know whether it comes from cattle in that regard. I mean, whether it jumped. But when we looked at the sequence, it is homologous to the degree of 96% to the genomes reported for for bovine uh, rotavirus B isolates. And so um, that is, you know, a bit of a smoking gun that it may have come from cattle, although we have no evidence and the farms that we talked to uh, this year that were affected did not have any cattle on them. So it's not something just as easy as, oh, some farms had cattle and got it and some farms didn't. None of the farms that we uh, worked with um, of the 248 respondents to our survey this spring, uh, they did not report cattle on their farms that they had or had had within the last five years. Hmm.
0: It's really interesting. So Dr. Adam, as an innovator in equine research, where do you see rotaviral research headed in the next several years?
1: Great question. I I think we're making progress on rotavirus A because at the current time, we only have a monovalent rotavirus A strain G3 vaccine. And we certainly see rotavirus A strain G14 in our, you know, 90 to 120 day old foals. So we hope to make strides with that. Dr. Lee uh, and Dr. Wang and myself, we started an initiative last year trying to understand better how mares respond to that vaccine and how protective antibodies are developed and how long they last in foals, And so that's going to be a great bedrock to then use to study the rotavirus B that obviously we are actively uh, writing grants for to, to get the funding to make sure we can continue the research on rotavirus B with the aim to get a vaccine. Um, potentially more user-friendly diagnostic tools, for example, benchtop testing, which we have for rotavirus A that any farm, any um, veterinary clinic can have, doesn't need a PCR machine to do that. And to have a lot more tools at our fingertips to prevent this happening in future and treat it better. It also has obviously some human health, One Health impacts. So we will hope to get um, some traction in the, some with funding that may come from the the human sphere to be able to move forward with that because this is still a huge problem on the World Health Organization list of critical diseases.
0: Indeed, and I've, you know, One Health, that phrase, I probably didn't hear it a whole lot until maybe 10 years ago. Um, And now, especially with, uh, you know, the pandemic and what you guys have experienced this year, um, it's just, there's just a lot more conversation about it.
1: Absolutely, Stephanie, and it, and it really goes beyond infectious diseases because, you know, as you know yourself as a rider, um, arthritis is a problem in horses, and they're great models for, for human arthritis because they have wear and tear issues. So it's it's a really all-encompassing approach that it means we can sort of cross-pollinate our research um, with what's happening in the human field, no matter what sphere it is, whether it's musculoskeletal, infectious diseases, epidemiology. Um, And we've really got to sort of uh, open up the the, the toolbox that that all researchers have and uh, get all the best goodies at our fingertips for a One Health approach.
0: So what about the greater um, globe of equine research? Where do you see that going in the next several years?
1: Oh, that's a very exciting question um i i think obviously i'm, I'm super biased and, and so proud of the gluck center because obviously we the people that are here were the people that really pushed for the first equine genome to be um put forward and have just produced the latest iteration at cav3 which is the latest at fabulous iteration of the equine genome and so that Um, Big data approach and having these reference genomes, not just for horses, but also for for bacteria, viruses, fungi, all manner of different species. I mean, that has just blown the lid off what we can do in science. It's just a quantum leap. Uh, You know, this stuff would have been unthinkable. Even 20 years ago, it would have been super expensive. A hundred years ago, completely unimaginable. So um, with big data, computational biology, taking an integrated approach with lots of different disciplines coming together, we are making really quantum leaps forward. And essentially we're really limited more by money than anything else. Our imagination and the tools that are coming into our our labs are just taking us forward uh, in leaps and bounds. And hopefully, you know, we will be headed toward a much more personalized medicine approach for, for horses. Um, we will also be able to have a much better comprehension of that host pathogen interaction, uh, which is all important to understanding why some horses are gonna come down with the disease and get really, really sick, and some won't um, with different diseases. So it's a very exciting time in science right now, I have to say.
0: It is. I. I remember reporting on um, the genome as it was being sequenced many years ago. And I mean, this this was just sort of a figment of my imagination. I'm sure the researchers working on it saw the potential. But, you know, for me, I just was looking at the diversity of the breeds and the color characteristics and things like that. And these tools just seem to be so universally applicable. <laughs> so um, I'm excited to see where this goes next.
1: Yeah, yeah, very powerful tools. Mm-hmm.
0: So where can listeners learn more about your work, Dr. Adam?
1: Um, well, thanks, Stephanie. That's that's great. We, um, we really work hard with the land grant mission here at the university, and we offer veterinary CE that is essentially open to everybody now that we're on Zoom. We're not necessarily limited by physical constraints. And um, you can go to our website at the GLUC to sign up for those uh, educational opportunities. We also have um, a monthly and a quarterly publication, we have the Equine Disease Quarterly, which is really a splendid publication where we're looking at infectious diseases. And um, we have got a monthly magazine that really showcases all of the work being done in equine programs and across campus uh, and in the Department of Veterinary Sciences, which is VDL, the Veterinary Diagnostic Lab, and the Gluck. Um, And so every month you have sort of anywhere between eight and a dozen little articles on the research that we're doing uh, here at the university that that precisely relates to horses. It is all totally horse centric. And that's called Equine Science Review. And you can sign up for that and it just gets popped into your mailbox once a month for you to take a look at those articles. And so um, I think uh, you're gonna be probably sharing those links with uh, with, with our listeners. Because Mm -hmm. um, our website is a place that you can go to to navigate those things, but we'll give you some more direct links to get to them so that um, we really like to give information out there to as many people as possible uh, to make sure that, you know, people get good stuff to read.
0: Mm -hmm. Indeed. And uh, please do look at the show notes, listeners, to see what you can find there. Lots of goodies there. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Adam, for sharing your time and expertise with us today.
1: Stephanie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed.
0: I also want to thank our sponsor, Zoetis. For more from the horse, visit thehorse.com, sign up for our newsletters, or look for Ask the Horse Live wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you like this podcast, please do all the things you would do to support a good podcast. Rate, subscribe, review, and share it with your friends. Please join us next time as we talk with the horse industry equine
1: innovators.